You can now find all of C-SPAN's nonfiction-focused podcasts in one place, the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed. Follow now, and you'll get all of C-SPAN's podcasts that are nonfiction book-related every week. I'm Shannon. And I'm Rachel. And as part of the podcast team here at C-SPAN, we wanted to make it easy for our nonfiction book lovers to access all of our offerings in one place. Hear from authors like Kadada Williams on her book, I Saw Death Coming, Joan Biscubic and her latest, Nine Black Robes, or Neil King, who shared his walking journey from D.C. to New York City in his book, American Ramble. Featured programs will include Book Notes Plus, Q&A, Afterwards, and About Books. You can follow the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed wherever you get your podcasts. This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, journalist Rebecca Grant discusses her book, Birth, Three Mothers, Nine Months, and Pregnancy in America. She reports on maternal health care in the U.S. and discusses how social and political dynamics impact pregnancy and motherhood. She's interviewed by New York Times reporter Alicia Gupta. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, let's dive right in. You, uh, you know, I'm just going to start off with sort of what people might end with in, a, in an interview. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned in the book that a lot of pregnancy books on the market are geared toward providing guidance and tips. Uh, but yours, however, has a very simple premise. It follows three pregnant women at a birthing center in Oregon. Um, it is not really a self-help book. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on who this book is for in your mind and what you hope they take away from it. I think that this book is for really anyone, and I know that that sounds so broad and so vague, but I really wanted to write a book that could be as appealing to people who do not have children, who don't want to have children, who are maybe not at that phase in their life yet where they're thinking about it, or who maybe have already had their children and are in a different kind of later phase. I mean, I was really hoping to write something that spoke to a sort of fundamental human experience that in some way, shape, or form is how all of us are here, but that in many ways remains somewhat taboo or or unspoken about or kind of not spoken about with this like real degree of honesty in any kind of real sort of public way. And I wanted to also have that conversation be framed in the context of other kind of reproductive experiences like abortion or miscarriage or pregnancy loss, which are, you know, even more 
widespread and, and common. And so, well, of course, I would hope that people who are navigating some sort of a conception or pregnancy or, you know, birth or postpartum journey, of course, I think that and I hope that the book speaks to them. But I also really hope that it's for anyone who has some measure of, of interest or curiosity about ultimately how we're all here. Right, right. I mean, and what a, what timing, right? I mean, considering mm. all of the the state uh, legislation around abortion and reproductive rights, uh, did you imagine that your book would land at this kind of it, within this storm of stories around abortion and reproductive rights? No, definitely not. I mean, I I have reported on abortion as well as maternal health care, you know, extensively as my beat since around 2015, and so I was very much, you know, paying attention to what was happening with abortion legislation and and laws specifically and following all of that. So, um, you know, I think with with the Dobbs decision and in the lead up to it, I had sort of, you know, like many people, I think, who were pretty immersed in the sort of abortion rights space, I think I had kind of seen it coming just because I Mm -hmm. reported on what happened at the state level. But even with that context, even with that reporting experience, it still came as quite a shock. And then also, you know, could not have anticipated the sort of groundswell, I think, of interest in maternal health care and, you know, specifically, I think, in in racial disparities and inequities in maternal health care that has been very much emerging in a very public way, kind of around the same time. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm really excited to be able to put the book out there into the world at this moment, even though mm-hmm. there's a lot about this moment that is really alarming. Right, right. Um, I know journalists hate to do this um, and insert themselves into the story, but I'd <laughs> love to hear about your birthing experience first before we dive into the book. My own personal one? Yeah. I don't have any children. Oh, okay. Well, so sorry. I don't have one. <laughs> I'll take that back. Um <laughs> One of the things you highlight in the book, and I I mean, I guess this is why I was asking, is that, you know, is how inefficient and ineffective the American healthcare system is when it comes to childbirth, um, especially when compared to other industrialized nations. Talk to me about some of the ways in which the system fails. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, such a big kind of complicated question, and and there's a couple different ways to answer it, that of course everything is, is sort of connected, and so certainly one of them is cost. I mean, our I think it's something. I think it's about 111 billion dollars that's spent right. on maternal health care in the U.S. every year, and all of our procedures. Um, you know, like the, how much a vaginal birth costs in sort of total costs, um, and how much a cesarean costs are much more expensive in the U.S. than they are in some other sort of peer countries, and so. We're just spending a lot of money and then we're spending it for outcomes that are also poorer than a lot of those other countries that are spending less. Um, so, you know, the U.S. has some of the kind of worst um, rates of maternal mortality and adverse outcomes among peer countries. And our rates seem to be getting worse. And we have pretty high rates of interventions, medical interventions like um, you know, cesarean sections and inductions and those sorts of things, which then contribute to the costs. And then, of course, it's also related to our insurance environment and people who are uninsured or underinsured or the costs that people incur to navigate the healthcare system. And so, um, you know, all of those things are, are related, but they're also sort of like so many different ways to approach that question, which, you know, is something I, I tried to 
do in the book was to bring in a lot of, you know, let's consider this avenue of our maternal health care system and let's kind of consider this one and, and let's look back into history and see where the roots of this sort of system is. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned those issues and they're all compounded for women of color, particularly black women, right? I mean, talk to me about the racial disparities, not just... Uh, sorry, talk to me about the disparities racially, which, you know, we know the U.S. is is not that great compared to industrialized nations, but it's even worse for people of color. Yes, absolutely. And and the reason that our maternal mortality rates are um, sort of as high as they are are because of those racial disparities. And so if you're sort of, you know, separating out... Um, I mean, pretty much, you know, white women, then the rates are going to look even worse. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, one of them is medical racism. It's the type of, of treatment and care that people of color and, and sort of, as I mostly focus on in the book, black women experience when they engage with the healthcare system, whether they're taken seriously, whether they are given the, the treatment and the sort of attention that they deserve. And so there's a sort of... Um, little phrase that uh, that one of the doctors who I had encountered in my research talked about, which was too much too soon or too little too late, meaning that patients are either getting certain procedures or, or sort of more things than they need or more surgical interventions, which can create additional complications, or they're they're being ignored and they're not having their me- their needs addressed. And so you have that context of, of kind of the, the health care um, that people are receiving, and then you're also combining that with just um, what's known as weathering, which is sort of the chronic, the result of the chronic stress of existing in America as a person of color or as in this case, a black person, and the ways that that really can have um, an effect on the body and the ways that that can then manifest in terms of pregnancy and childbirth. And so, um, yeah, it's a real serious problem. Right. I mean, I I actually just did did a piece on weathering and I did a lot of research on it. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that it cuts across social economic class, too. Mm hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, throughout your book, you also trace the origins of obstetrics and gynecology, which, again, is fraught uh, with a racist history. Talk us through um, the origins. Right. So in the U.S., um, you know, kind of in the, the beginning, the early days, midwives were the norm. They were the primary caretakers of people who were um, pregnant and, and giving birth. And so midwives tended to be elder women in the community. They tended to you know, already have had their own children, so they had been through the process, and they were respected and trusted, and they would care for people in their homes. And you know, that would be true. Um, and you know, it was different in, in different types of communities, but that sort of role of the midwife, which kind of loosely comes from like the phrasing of, of with women, and it was a pretty you know important and and sacred role across communities, and it was um, you know knowledge was passed down through generations, and it was very much a um, kind of learn by doing sort of model, and then as medicine in the U.S. became more formalized and um, as there was sort of like a, you know, quote unquote, medical establishment began to emerge in a cohesive way. Male physicians started to look at childbirth as something that they were interested in getting involved in. You know, before it had really been this sort of more insulated kind of woman to woman thing. And once they realized that, you know, people are having babies all the time, this is a pretty good business opportunity. But then also, I think, saw some opportunities to apply some of the knowledge that they had learned 
through medical schooling or training that they had received to apply that to childbirth. You know, once the male physicians got involved, that really set the the kind of change in motion. And so then you had male physicians who were entering people's delivery rooms at home. I mean, so really it was their bedrooms. Um, and so a midwife might also be present and it was still a home-based practice. But then, especially for middle and upper class families, you had that male doctor there who was sort of the men of sci- man of science. Um, and then over time, as they gained more power, there was really a concerted campaign to stamp out midwives who were, you know, sort of seen as like these lowly women. And there was, of course, a lot of racism and misogyny and xenophobia that was wrapped up in, in this really concerted effort to stamp out midwifery and create um, sort of, you know, a birth system that was really in the hands of, of male physicians. Right. And you mentioned in the book the increasingly clinical approach to childbirth took on a moral and political shape, too, right? I mean, it was associated with feminism and progress. Can you explain that? It was. It's really interesting to learn some of this history because the fight for pain relief in childbirth was such a feminist issue for a long time. And so pain and suffering was sort of, you know, part and parcel of childbirth and just this burden that women had to bear. And, and, you know, this is what you have to go through. And so when there first started to be options for for pain relief that emerged, whether that was chloroform or ether, some of those earlier methods um, or some of the ones that came later, there was actually some some real resistance to it, you know, on the part of the church or even on the part of some physicians or communities who were like, no, no, like childbirth is meant to be really painful. And so when uh, what was called twilight sleep emerged, which was this sort of, you know, anesthetic cocktail that didn't actually provide pain relief, but it provided like amnesia so that you wouldn't remember exactly what had happened. It was pioneered in this clinic in Germany. And once American women started finding out about it, they started going to Germany in droves to sort of have this twilight sleep where they didn't remember the pain of childbirth and then went back to the U.S. and were, you know, kind of praising it and, and passing on the dogma and um, so then there was like this real feminist activism where they held meetings and campaigns to try to convince doctors here that they should be providing this this twilight sleep. And so that feminist campaign, at, you know, back then was really around pain relief and childbirth and the sort of feminist like issues of childbirth have evolved a little bit over time. So, you know, in the 19 like 70s and 80s, there were some uh, feminist campaigns around, like, we think that male partners should be allowed in the delivery room instead of having them be down the hall in the quote-unquote, you know, stork club pacing around with their cigars or whatever. Um, or, you know, uh, the desire to not be, like, have everything completely shaved before birth. And so feminism really has been involved in right. a lot of the gains that we've made in terms of kind of making childbirth feel like a more I guess, humane experience. But then at the same time, I think that there's also been some distancing in some cases between the feminist movement and childbirth. Um, I think maybe particularly kind of around second wave feminism, because there is this idea of like, we're sort of trying to liberate ourselves from only being in this role as as wives and, and mothers and caretakers. And so, you know, there were sort of other causes that maybe seemed like they were more central to to that particular fight. Right, right. You know, since this book is set in a birthing center, you bring up a lot of, um, you know, the, the medicalization of childbirth. I'm going to cite a few figures from the book. One in three babies are born via cesarean surgery. Fifty-two percent of women said they received Pitocin at some point during labor, uh, which speeds up labor. Seventy-five percent got an epidural. 
Um, and I was quite blown away to learn that at one point doctors were encouraging that every woman should get a surgical cut at the vaginal opening to theoretically make it easier for the baby to pass, though that has been shown to be problematic. Um, so giving birth in a birthing center, which you describe as almost the exact opposite experience of all of that, could you walk readers through who might be unfamiliar with what actually um, a birth at a birthing center looks like? I really think of a birth center as a sort of midpoint between a home birth and a hospital birth. And so birth centers can be, um, they're t- you know, tr- primarily the domain of midwives, whether that's a direct entry midwife or whether it's a nurse midwife who's someone who is a nurse but then receives or earns an additional midwifery credential. And so at a birth center, at least the ones that I've encountered, the ones that I've reported on, they look sort of like almost like a a B&B or something. You know, you walk in, there's usually a lobby with some cute furniture and artwork and plants, and then each of the rooms don't really feel that clinical. You know, instead of a a hospital bed or like an exam table, there's just going to be a normal bed often. And there are, of course, medical supplies that are on hand, but at least in the centers that I was reporting on, they're sort of tucked away. Birth centers don't do surgery, so they're not performing C-sections. They don't administer epidurals. They rely on other forms of, of kind of non, what's called non-pharmacological pain relief. So that might, might be something like a birth tub, because um, water can be can be soothing. Or some birth centers have nitrous, um, which can provide some temporary pain relief. And so people who go to birth centers are generally, you know, meeting with midwives. On the same cadence that they might go to meet with their OBGYN, the appointments are typically lasting an hour, and so there's, you know, the clinical stuff can be over in maybe 15 minutes, and then the rest of the time can just be spent building a relationship between the midwife and the client. Um, and so when you have a home birth, all of the supplies that are required have to be brought in, and so that's usually a combination of the client supplying things or buying certain things, making sure they have enough towels around. Um, and then it's also the midwives bringing their supplies in. And so at a birth center, you really don't have to come with any of your own stuff. That stuff will be on hand kind of like at a hospital. But there's also, um, you know, things that are there to that are tools, right, that people are going to use as, as part of the birth. So, yeah, I think of it as sort of a halfway point or a midpoint. And that was part of what inspired me to set the birth the book in a birth center was because I was interested to explore, well, what does home birth look like? What does birth center birth look like? What does hospital birth look like? And so I felt like Mm. picking that sort of middle option, I guess, was was a way to then be able to um, compare it to those other options. Right. Do we know the success rates and safety records of birthing centers? Yeah, so there's, um, you know, a major, major big study that found that the rates are comparable to what you might expect to find at a hospital in terms of mortality, but the rates of interventions are much, much lower, and the costs are much, much lower. Um, and there's also you know, a similar study that um, was conducted around home birth. And so with safety rates, it's a really interesting question because there's, there's all of these other factors that go into it. And so Um, You know, that question of like, is this safe is something that I know all of the three characters in my book asked. It's, of course, a question that I asked. I think that anyone asks. And the answer is yes, that it is safe. And um, in many ways, it can be better. However, it is sort of to achieve optimal safety. There do need to be certain 
measures that are in place to to promote that safety, and that's things like um, integration with a hospital, a relationship with a hospital, or at least the ability to transfer a client to the hospital in the event that they're able to need it. Um, you know, safety can depend on the ways in which the midwives are trained or the things that they're able to do at a birth center. Like, you know, at that birth center, are they able to administer Pitocin in the event of a postpartum hemorrhage? And so there are, um, you know, it's sort of, it's a little bit challenging with all of this to make really blanket statements because our, both our maternal health care landscape and our midwifery landscape is pretty fragmented in the U.S. And so, you know, a birth center might look one way in one place and be very different in another. Mm-hmm. But I would say for the most part, if, if sort of all of those things are in place, like those relationships with doctors in the event you need to transfer, the ability to do certain types of kind of medications or, or um, interventions at the birth center as mm-hmm. needed, then, yeah, the safety really is comparable. Right. I wanted to come back to what you said earlier of, like, at birthing centers, there's uh, the, the rate of intervention is much lower. And I, I wanted to give um, viewers a sort of example of intervention. Um, uh, I think there was a statistic in the book about how many women give birth while lying on their back in hospitals versus a birthing center. And I, I wonder if you can explain why that is such an important statistic, lying on your back versus being able to walk around. I think when you um, sort of look at how people before hospital birth was was really the norm of sort of the positions in which people would give birth, what you find is that laying on your back is not really the most common thing you see. And, you know, that could be something like if you're looking at artwork, you know, from, you know, antique or um, ancient artwork from a long time ago, or like certain kind of fertility type figurines, like it's really common for people to be squatting. It's common for people to be on their hands and knees or maybe on their sides. And so at least for me growing up, whether that was through movies or TV, the scenes are always of someone on their back, you know, with their knees up, kind of by their ears, doing the whole pushing thing. Um, And certainly some people, like, left to their own devices, that might be what ends up feeling the most comfortable. But that that position is also one that is sort of the easiest for, you know, in this case, let's say the physician or the doctor, because they can then be at the foot of the bed and they sort of have, like, this angle and they have room to maneuver their hands or whatever their tools are. and so for a lot of people in labor, that's not the most comfortable way to be. But that's also, you know, if you have an epidural, that's going to be the position that you're going to be in. And so um, I think one thing that birth centers and sort of home births really try to promote is, and, and midwives, let's, you know, let's try to get in this tub. Or why don't we try being on our hands and knees? Or why don't you try hanging this, um, you know, cloth over a door and kind of leaning into it? These other positions that can both help to relieve some of the pressure and potentially um, help kind of move the baby down. Right. Yeah. You know, um, you write in the book in 2017, one out of every 62 births took place outside the hospital. And that number grew somewhat during the pandemic. So, you know, birthing centers and midwives are starting to serve more and more mothers. Um, I wonder if you can talk to us about how after being sidelined, they were able to, um, you know, come back uh, and do more and more births. And also, how state laws affect their ability to do their jobs. Right. After, so, you know, 
kind of picking up almost from where I left off earlier when I was talking about some of that history, there was a concerted campaign in the U.S. to really stamp out midwives and midwifery, except for a period of time in places where they were the only real providers of health care. And so in that case, I'm really particularly thinking of the South, where the majority of the midwives who were referred to as grand midwives, they were taking care of their communities. They had incredible um, rates of, of sort of, of, of safety and, mm-hmm. and of health. And so, you know, I read a whole slew of, of midwifery memoirs for the book and referenced some of them. But, um, you know, midwives like Margaret Charles Smith or Oni Lee Logan, who delivered thousands of babies and just had remarkable success rates. And so, you know, there were sort of these, these communities or these clientele populations that doctors weren't willing to serve or, um, you know, they were sort of happy to let the midwives continue to be the caretakers for those communities. And then in, for the most part, around the 70s, um, you know, partly in result, as a result of Medicare and Medicaid. And so that there were more people, you know, poorer people were able to have access to insurance and have greater access to the healthcare system, which was also an effect of the Civil Rights Act with, with integration. Um, that kind of created the opportunity for states to actually get rid of the practice of midwifery altogether. So they would stop issuing midwifery licenses, which meant that if you were practicing as a midwife without a license, you were kind of like a rogue practitioner. And so there was a really concerted effort, as I said, to stamp out midwifery. But then around the same time that that was happening, there was also a resurgence of interest in midwifery, but that was predominantly among white kind of middle class women, um, many of whom were kind of associated with the hippie movement. So there was a lot of this, you know, more uh, ideal of more authentic living and getting back to the land and not kind of wanting, you know, the man involved in, in the birth experience. And so there was this resurgence of midwifery um, around that same time. And so when it reemerged, it was kind of more of like a white lady thing. And that has been the pattern for the past couple decades. But I also think that that's really starting to shift. Um, and there's a lot of really incredible work that's being done on, um, you know, black midwifery and, and community birth centers or even just community dual organizations or organizations that are there. And so, um, you know, state laws really do have a big impact because they affect who is able to practice or if people are able to practice at all um, as midwives. And before I started working on this book, but one of the, the sort of stories that I reported that, that got me interested in this subject was about Alabama women who were crossing state lines to give birth with midwives. So at the time, Alabama did not allow the practice of direct entry midwifery. So that meant that if you wanted an out-of-hospital birth, you had to go out of state. So most of the people that I interviewed for that story, they were going to Tennessee. So they were renting cottages over the state border. They were driving hours when they were in labor, many of them, in order to make it to the cottage so the midwife could meet them there. Um, and that goes back to sort of the safety thing I was talking about before, too. You know, if you're criminalizing or preventing the practice of midwifery, people are going to go to great lengths um, to access it. And then, you know, that creates this whole issue. So I think today there's like 13 or 14 states that don't allow the practice of direct entry midwifery, but slowly, you know, every year or so, every couple of years, more states are, are changing their laws. And, and that's really important to making midwifery more accessible, which I think is really important. Right. And in it isn't accessible with meth- Medicaid in many places, right? Yeah. A lot of um, public and private insurance don't cover any form of, of out-of-hospital midwifery care, at least. Um, so Oregon is, I think, a little bit unique in that um, many of the private insurers will cover out-of-hospital birth or, or particular practices. And then 
the state public insurance, the Medicaid, does ostensibly cover it. But I know through reporting and speaking with folks at the birth center that the reality of that can be quite a challenge. So actually getting um, having a patient get approved to be eligible for it or actually getting the birth center reimbursed, it's not... Um, you know, it's not like a perfectly smooth or seamless situation, but certainly that's a crucial step in order to make midwifery accessible because otherwise people have to pay out of pocket. So even if it's cheaper in terms of total costs than a hospital birth, it still might be, you know, $3,000, $5,000, $7,000, and that's a lot of money. Right, right. Um, So is that why you chose Oregon? Is, Is it legal and covered by Medicaid in Oregon? That was part of it. I mean, I live in Oregon. I live in Portland. So certainly that was also part of it. Um, But yeah, I think that I was interested in setting the book in a place where birth centers and midwifery were fairly accessible and sort of normal, like where there were a lot of people who were interested in them, where there was some history in the state of the practice, where there was the infrastructure in place. Um, Because I, you know, I think one of the points that I'm trying to make in the book is how I believe through the reporting and research that I've done that one of the ways we can address many of the most entrenched problems in our maternal health care system is by integrating midwifery more fully into it and by making it more accessible. And I think that in order to sort of um, consider that argument, I wanted to make sure that the book was in a place where some version of that is, is, you know, is in effect of sort of like this is what we could in some measure be striving for. Right. Talk to me about the three women you picked and you followed for nine months. Uh, So my starting point was to figure out kind of the birth center where I was going to start. So I was drawn to Andalusia in part because they were the busiest birth center in the state at the time when I was trying to figure out, you know, where I was going to set the book. And the uh, birth center's owner was just incredibly open and supportive and, and um, willing to participate in the project, which was huge. You know, I really needed the full buy-in if I was just going to be lurking around in a birth center and sitting in on appointments and just, you know, like sitting in the kitchen while everyone's gossiping and drawing, you know, eating snacks and stuff. So I really just kind of needed a place where they were willing to let me be very present. And Angelou's was certainly that. And so um, Jennifer, who is the birth center's owner, she told me to go in for a tour and I went in for a tour and the person who answered the door and checked me in and gave me the tour was Jillian, who is one of the characters in the book. And so that day I met Jillian. I didn't actually, I don't think I learned that she was pregnant on that day. I think we just, she gave me this lovely tour and then I, you know, met with Jennifer and kind of went on with the day. But then when I found out that Jillian was pregnant with her first child And when I found out that she was an aspiring midwife herself, she had completed midwifery school and her midwifery apprenticeship hours. She just hadn't received um, her license yet. She hadn't taken the test yet. And I thought that that would be a really great opportunity to consider the the history of midwifery and what it takes to become a midwife, sort of through her story of of learning this and pursuing this as a practice as well. Um, And she also because she's a midwife and passionate about it, was really excited and kind of invested in the project, which was something that I felt like was important since there was the reporting to take a long time. And I was asking so many really intimate questions. You know, I needed people who were excited. Um, And I also thought it was, you know, because Jillian was the office manager, she just had a really great perspective on the kind of the life and the daily operations of the birth center itself. So that was how I found Jillian. And then to find the other characters, I was really doing a combination of sitting in on appointments. So I would shadow midwives throughout their day as they met with clients and did prenatals and that sort of thing. 
And so I would encounter patients that way or clients that way. Um, and then also I asked Andalus to sort of pull together a list of maybe like a dozen or so people who they thought might be interested in participating in the book. And I contacted all of them and did interviews with all of them. And that was how I met Tanika. And I think I knew from our first conversation that I would love for her to be a character. She made me laugh so much. Um, and I loved the way that her mind engaged with the pregnancy. She is an incredibly creative person and she loves you know like sci-fi and fantasy books and so she would just make these i don't know metaphors or analogies or something or these little jokes that i just thought were so unique and i really appreciated that kind of unique voice and perspective um, and i was also drawn to her story because tanika was a nurse and so she was someone who was very much interested and involved in the medical field and had a tremendous amount of respect for the profession but then also had spent so much time reading and doing research and learning about many of the flaws in the system, which were things that I wanted to address in the book. And she was very invested in, in changing those or working for improvement or sort of using her role as a nurse to make sure that, that patients like her were really cared for. So I thought that that position of sort of one foot in the birth center's midwife space with her own pregnancy experience, but then also one foot in the medical field through her nursing really provided this dichotomy that I thought would lend itself to some really interesting kind of explorations. And then my third character, Allison, was a little bit of an outlier in that she toured Andalus and considered it, but ended up giving birth at a different birth center. So I actually met Allison because I posted, um, I think it was a what to expect forum, like one of those pregnancy forums in the Portland one early on, um, maybe even before I had met with Andalus, I, I just made a post and said, I'm a journalist and I'm working on this book. And if anyone's interested, you know, feel free to email me. And she was one of the people who reached out. And I was immediately drawn to her, I think, for two reasons. Um, one was that I she had had an abortion experience and a miscarriage experience prior to that current pregnancy. And I knew that that would be an opportunity to present abortion and, and miscarriage and pregnancy loss and, and pregnancy and birth and all that as all part of the same spectrum, which, as I mentioned at the beginning, was really important to me. Um, and then also, Allison was not someone who ever thought of herself as a birth center or midwife person. She really had always assumed she would go to a hospital. Everyone in her family and her friends were all, you know, had gone to hospitals to give birth. And so it was a traumatic kind of miscarriage experience that really changed her thinking and led her down this different alternative path. And so because it really took almost a shifting of her worldview for her to consider midwifery and out-of-hospital birth, she approached the process of figuring out where to go with such rigor. And she was so curious and she was asking a lot of questions and she really um, was tremendously thoughtful about every single decision that she made, which I thought would make for such a compelling kind of character to follow because we could talk through each of those decisions and those kind of and, uh, milestones together. Right. And it's interesting that for all three of them, this was their first child. Mm -hmm. what, why, what was the thinking behind that? I wanted to present pregnancy and birth as something that is like the sort of starting point is this idea in some ways that this is something that's completely routine and mundane, right? It's like millions of babies are born in the U.S. every year. Um, you get to a certain phase in your life and it just seems like everyone you know probably is, is having babies or going through this process. And yet at the same time, it's actually like this really kind of incredible, weird, alarming, stressful, bizarre experience to go through, too. 
Um, there's so much that people don't know. Everyone reacts differently. Your whole body is changing. Like you're, mm. there's more blood going through your body than you were used to, or like your boobs are bigger, or you're really nauseous. I mean, whatever it is, right? I mean, it's just like this very strange experience um, where your body is sort of like changing out from under you. And um, you know, for some people, it feels I think great the whole time, but I think for a lot of people, it really doesn't. And so I think I wanted people who hadn't, you know, been pregnant and then given birth before because they were discovering, they were embarking on this process of discovering, like, what am I like as a pregnant person? What does my body involve? And like, oh, I didn't know about this test or scan. What is this? Because I do think for a lot of people, once you've done it once, even if subsequent pregnancies are really different, you still kind of know what to expect. Like, you've gone through it. And so I really wanted people who were doing it for the first time because I just felt like there would be this sort of measure of discovery and intensity that I wanted the reader to be able to participate in as well. Right, exactly. Um, I think being a journalist myself, I was really fascinated by the way you structured the book. Um, Each chapter dedicated to a slice of each woman's life, and then you braided them together. Did you always envision the book uh, shaping itself that way, or did it happen organically? And also, how many hours of recording do you have? (laughs) Oh, I actually don't even know. (laughs) I don't think I have a tally. Um, So many, um, so many hours. And also, so many reporting notebooks. Right. um, So, yeah, a lot of of material to work through. Right. Um, I... I think the answer to the, the kind of braiding question is yes and no. I always knew that I wanted to have both closely reported narrative and a lot of research and context and, you know, statistics and numbers. I knew that I wanted the book to have both of those things. But I think figuring out exactly how they were going to knit together was very much something that I grappled with while writing and then that we, my editor and I were working very closely on during the editing process. And so, um, you know, when I turned in my first draft, and maybe this is like very sort of, you know, journalist in the weeds, in the first draft, I didn't have them quite as tightly braided because I, I was thinking maybe it would make sense to stay with each character the whole time throughout within each section so that you can kind of really invest the time in that character. But then as we were editing, it really became clear um, that doing that sort of more, like really more aggressively braiding them together um, would sort of enable you to cover a lot of issues and keep the momentum and kind of the pacing going. And right. um, I was, you know, in my character selection, as I probably touched on before, I there were certain topics and themes that I knew were really important that I wanted to explore. So I was certainly thinking about who I was going to choose as characters with an eye to being able to then have it be a somewhat seamless segue into those contextual Issues. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was really something that took a lot of time to make sure that we were doing it in a way that was effective and not, you know, I don't know, disruptive or confusing. So, right. And I mean, that commitment of time and I guess emotional investment at some point, too, right? Like for following three women for nine months. What was that like for you and seeing a, seeing birth so up close uh, for all three of them? It really felt like such um, an honor and and a privilege. I mean, I, I'm i used to reporting on really intimate, sensitive things, you know, having reported on abortion and reproductive rights for eight years or however long. Like, I'm, I'm used to being in this reporter position where I'm asking people who I don't know very well to tell me about, like, whatever is going on in a very intimate, you know, things that they maybe haven't told people that they're very close to. 
So that that was sort of like a muscle I, I guess I was used to using. But the time commitment was certainly new. And so it was a constant sort of navigation of trying to respect their boundaries and trying to make sure that I wasn't being too intrusive or taking up too much of their time because they all worked and they had other families and commitments, um, but then also trying to make sure that I was getting all of the reporting that I needed and that we were building a relationship. Um, and frankly, I was so impressed by how much they were all willing to share. Like, I don't know if, if I was in the other position, if I would be that honest. I mean, it was just such a wonderful thing to sort of be able to have these conversations with them and um, have them be so open. And, um, you know, they all chose to use their first names in the book, which was something that we talked about. And I was, if they had wanted to, you know, maybe change their name or go by a pseudonym, I was certainly open to that discussion. But I think that in spending so much time together and in really being as transparent as I could be about what my goals were with the project and what I was hoping to include and all of that, I think... I hope that um, everyone was sort of very aware of of what was going to be included and why. And I think each of the characters felt like, even though they were being incredibly vulnerable and raw in some ways, that that was because they would have loved to have read something that was so vulnerable and raw while they were navigating this. You know, they wanted other people to have the benefit of of kind of reading this honest accounting of how hard it can be to go through this. Was there anything in the reporting? I mean, I, I think you went in knowing what you wanted. You wanted these stories that tell, uh, you know, tell the bigger picture of childbirth in America today. But is there anything in that reporting process that surprised you? I mean, you've been doing this for so long now. I mean, I don't, I feel like it's probably fine to give a, you know, a spoiler, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is that each of the three characters in the book all give birth in a different place from where they started or planned to. And that was something I wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Jillian had wanted to have a home birth, and then Allison and Tanika were both planning a birth center birth. Mm -hmm. And so during the pregnancy chapters and during that reporting process, we all spent a lot of time talking through why they wanted to give birth where they were planning to and what their concerns or anxieties were about a potential transfer because transfers from out of hospital to a hospital for first-time mothers are pretty common. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's something maybe like 16%. So um, certainly midwives are making sure when they're talking with clients that they're being, they're having conversations about the fact that you might end up transferring to the hospital. And that might be because you realize you need more potent pain relief and that's fine. Or it might be because there's some sort of a complication that comes up. And so it's certainly like the idea of a transfer was something that was on each and every one of the characters' minds. But I did not expect that each and every one of them would move locations. I, you know, even just like statistically speaking, that's not, <laughs> that's not what you would, but not, not perfectly um, kind of normal, I guess. And so um, it was sort of funny the way that it happens because I was at Jillian's birth. Like, I was in the birth cottage at her birth. And I think it was maybe after the baby had been born already and we were just kind of hanging around. And I get a text from Tanika who was telling me that she, you know, just kind of was emerging from her transfer to the hospital and what had happened there. Because I had texted her a couple of days before to check in and didn't hear back. So I thought, mm, I wonder if, you know, this is yeah. because she's in labor. And so 
just it was so surreal to be like in basically in the room where Jillian had just given birth and then find out that Tanika gave birth on the same day, but it also moved locations. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really what surprised me the most was just I had known about the unpredictability of birth and that's something I engaged with a lot yeah. as a theme in the book. But then to yeah. really just sort of be like in it like that was um, yeah. pretty cool, actually. Yeah. And I think I mean, the midwives are, of course, the star of this book in some ways. Um I mean, I, I want to talk about their, um, I guess, their working conditions, like in terms of wages, in terms of being able to take breaks. I think we're in a period where frontline workers are so burned out. So how does that compare to the life of a midwife? So Angelou's had an interesting system in place, and I don't, I don't actually have a sense of sort of how many other birth centers might operate on this, this sort of um, schedule or model. But one of the things that's challenging about being a midwife is that when you're on, you're on. You have to be on call 24-7. If someone goes into labor, you have to be there. Mm -hmm. And so that affects your life in so many ways. I mean, you know, Jillian, as a student, would deal with this where she would be, you know, she couldn't have a glass of wine at dinner or like maybe Mm -hmm. more than one glass of wine. Um, I think it was no wine at all, because if she got called to a birth, she had to make sure that, you know, all of her faculties were there. Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, it's Oregon. If someone wants to go on a hike where they're going to lose cell service, that's also not something that you can do if you're on call. And so it is, you know, a really sort of um, intense thing, both, you know, actually being at a birth, of course, but then also just the way that in as you're going about the rest of your day-to-day life, it's not like you go into the center, you do appointments during business hours, and then you're just off duty and can chill out. And so the way that Angelou's addressed that was that they had midwives on, I believe it was like a three-month-on, one-month-off kind of schedule. And so that every couple of months, the midwives would have a full month when they were off. And so that way they could really unplug and you know, sort of disengage and take that rest time. And so, and it was also easy to schedule because whenever they had a new client, it would be like, okay, well, which month are you due? And so then the midwives that were sort of available to them as a care provider, you know, they wouldn't be assigning or, um, you know, having a midwife kind of tasked if they weren't going to be on duty during their break. And so I think, you know, you really have to be deliberate about Mm -hmm. figuring out how to give people the rest that they need so they don't burn out because I know that burnout like you said for any frontline worker and certainly Mm -hmm. for midwives and and I'm sure for OBGYNs too as well um, can be a really big challenge so Anjali's dealt with it with that sort of like full month off schedule which based on the midwives I spoke to they seemed to respond well to and and enjoy right Um, is (laughs) is there uh, um I mean, I wonder what it was like to be around midwives uh, who are unplugging. (laughs) I was trying to think of the best way to phrase that. (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, midwives are are, they were super fun to hang out with, um, both when they were, you know, at the birth center or, um, you know, sort of when they were unplugging. I mean, there's just like this level of sort of. I mean, it's not it's not like a dark humor. That's not quite the right thing that I mean, but just this ability. Like, I th- just think being present at so many really intense moments and, and things that really are life or death, like, they've just seen so much and they've been they've been there through so much. That it, I just think, like, the sort of types of, of stories that they have are just, like, unbelievable. And I included a few of those little ones in the book, but just sort of, you know, just, like, the, the birth story library is just kind of endless. And so it was really fun to even just hear a couple of those, you know, where they're, like, rolling out a pallet under a dining table so they can take a nap in a tiny apartment, you know, in between contractions right. or, like, 
throwing bloody water out a window um, right. <laughs> because they have no place else to put it and it looks like a crime scene. Just kind of some right. of the stuff like that um, right. was really fun. And, you know, just like all kinds of casual chat about cervixes and, and all that good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> right. All the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have one more question before I let you go. Um, are you present in these children's lives that you followed for nine months? <clears throat> I have, you know, spent a little bit of time with all of them. I wouldn't say, I'm not like an auntie figure, I don't think. <laughs> um, but You're I not start, attending birthday parties? Uh, no, I mean, which isn't to say that I, I wouldn't be, you know, invited or that I don't receive the pictures about the birthdays. Um, I certainly do and, and love getting all of the, the cute baby photos, which I, right. I make sure I get somewhat regularly because it's really crazy to see, especially because, right. you know, they were all born in um, almost exactly two years ago. So these aren't even like babies anymore, you know, they're like toddlers. Um, And so, you know, but, you know, people have like changes in their lives, some of which we get into with in the postpartum chapters, but not everything. And so like some folks have moved or changed jobs. And so, you know, they're kind of all um, have settled into whatever their their sort of rhythm of of parenthood is. And that was certainly something I thought a lot about of like where to draw the line or sort of where to stop reporting, I guess, because Mm -hmm. I certainly wanted to make sure that we were still in touch and I would have follow-up questions during the writing and the editing process. And I I so loved getting to know each and every one of them and felt connected to them. So I, I wasn't I certainly was hoping that our relationships would continue, but then also being mindful that as new parents who worked, they weren't going to spend like four hours on the phone with me every right. week anymore either, which was fine. Right. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, it, yeah, it's kind of a strange thing of like, okay, well, I still would love to talk on the phone sometimes, but I'm not going to record anymore. I'm not going to take notes anymore. Or maybe we just like meet for a casual coffee or something. Right. Um, so, yeah, kind of shifting into a slightly different mode was right. um, felt a little weird, not in a bad way, just something to adjust yeah. to. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and for joining me today. Um, best of luck with the book uh, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you for your questions. Of course. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.